Once Latin America's wealthiest country, the conflict has plunged Venezuela into deep economic turmoil. And the government's management of the economy has been disastrous. Conditions in Venezuela are heartbreaking. The power struggle between President Nicolas Maduro and the opposition leader Juan Guaido just keeps going Single on. largest economic collapse outside of war in at least 45 years. This is Voices of Venezuela, a new mini-series produced at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in collaboration with the Dracopoulos Ideas Lab. I'm your host, Moises Rendon, and the director of the Future of Venezuela Initiative at CSIS. I was born and raised in Venezuela. I left the country in 2012 to pursue better opportunities and a safer life in the United States. In each episode, we will dive into one of the many aspects of the crisis in Venezuela. We will hear from Venezuelans about what's happening on the ground and weave in analysis from experts at CSIS and beyond. We will cover a wide range of issues from water infrastructure to the lack of medicine to illegal mining. We will highlight what the U.S. and international community can do to help the voices of Venezuela. Welcome back to Voices of Venezuela. I'm Moises Rendon, Director of the Future of Venezuela Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. A few weeks ago, we talked to Catherine Bliss about Venezuela's health system, which is in dire situation after years of shortages, mismanagement, and now COVID-19. One of the things that Catherine elaborated on was the specific health hardship faced by Venezuelan women who in many ways have burned the brunt of the humanitarian crisis. When I traveled to the border of Venezuela and Colombia, I saw firsthand how women have been disproportionately affected, not just by the country's substandard health system, but by the economic collapse, violence, migration, and many other issues. One woman I met, Grady, was forced to leave Venezuela because she couldn't afford to feed her children. Sometimes I had to take my kids to my mom to see what she had because I didn't have anything to give them. I would go around noon and I was embarrassed to go to my mom's because she was going through the same crisis. My mom was also going through the same crisis. But sometimes when she had some, she would give them an arepa. In today's episode, we will dive into the substantive vulnerabilities of Venezuelan women and discuss why they must have equal representation in policy making in order to build lasting peace in Venezuela. To unpack this issue, we're joined by Alexandra Winkler. Alexandra is a former deputy mayor of El Atillo, a municipality of Caracas. She has been recognized for her social policy innovations, particularly in the realm of public-private partnerships. Alexandra has over 10 years of experience in organizational transformation, crisis management, and strategic communications. She's currently a senior associate to the Future Venezuela Initiative at CSIS, as well as a member of the Global Shapers Community and Initiative of the Work Economic Forum. Alex, we're so glad that you're joining us for this episode and for the Voices of Venezuela. Thank you so much. Thank you, Moises, for such a really interesting topic, which hopefully we'll be able to unpack the best way possible. I'm sure we will. Alex, before the crisis began, women in Venezuela, as well as in the rest of the region, faced serious disadvantages in access to education, employment, and health. Can you tell us about any efforts to advance women's rights in Venezuela since Chavez came to power in 1999? 
Well, Moises, when Hugo Chavez came to power, he declared himself immediately a feminist and he promised a lot of gender equality for Venezuelans. I will never forget back in 2008 when he was celebrating like the fifth anniversary of La Misión Sucre. Chavez said that all socialists were feminists because capitalism was the reflection of machismo. So at the beginning, yes, you can say he established various agencies and structures supposedly devoted to advancing women's rights, like Los Consejos Comunales, the Ministry of People's Power for Women. But really, in the end, his vision was strictly ideological, since he predicated on dismantling all types of capitalist structures, because to him, that had to be the precondition for gender equality. So... Soon enough, these agencies and these structures that Chavez created were just being mismanaged, lacked all types of effective structure to actually implement and evaluate policies and actually address the causes of the problem. So corruption really won that game quickly. So the absolute truth is that feminism in what they call the Bolivarian Revolution has just been a few more female ministers and legislators and a very heavy charged populist narrative that everyone wants to hear in political speeches. And its most tangible result is that today there are still no policies or programs in place to actually help employed women combine family life and work. You know, even before the economic crisis started, Venezuela was seeing an increase in the percentage of households held by women. Like in 1990, 24% of households were headed by women. And by 2011, that already had increased to 39%. So with fewer opportunities for paid work, women are instead remaining at home, taking on the toughest job, which is actually feeding their families, like you were saying before, actually feeding their children. So like many Venezuelan female civil society organizations have already concluded, it's a mix of bad ideology, incompetence, and negligence. And if you put that within the context of the most serious humanitarian crisis of our hemisphere, this has left Venezuelan women at their most vulnerable point in the past 20 years of revolution. Their reality is poverty, their reality is violence, hunger, malnutrition, and poor health. And that's why so many have chosen to flee. So next time you hear that Venezuela's revolution is feminist, that's absolutely false. Yes, no, thank you. You know, this type of crisis always affects the most vulnerable populations and, and Venezuelan women are not the exception. But tell us, okay, so the Venezuelan crisis went into different phases, now, as you were pointed out. The economic collapse that we see now today, you know, there are different visions, but more or less started about five to eight years ago, especially when the oil prices started collapsing and the, the Chavez administration and now Maduro's didn't have much to absorb all the subsidies and all the economic brunt of, of the government. How the situation of women have changed since the economic crisis really began in, in Venezuela? Yes. The thing is that the collapse is for women is not just economical. It's also on a health standpoint and also from like a societal well-being coexistence standpoint. And I can unpack it like the following way. So like from an economic standpoint, you know, according to official data between December 2014, 2015, over 99% of those who stopped being economically active in the country were women. So that meant that women were the first to leave the labor market when the economic crisis started. So a big reason for that is because all kinds of healthcare and services just became really harder to access, whether you were a woman or your man. But women always end up having to spend more time caring for the ill, staying at home, yeah. doing housekeeping, and just waiting in line for food, medicine, social services. So from higher levels of unemployment 
to access to poor education and health services. It's just what the crisis has actually created. So that from an economic standpoint, if you look at the lens from like a health standpoint, you know, the economic crisis obviously has created or has contributed to, you know, our collapsing public health system, which has had a disproportionate effect on women's and girls equally. So a lack of policies for sexual and reproductive health combined with the absence of any type of family planning services has just like altered a woman's sexual health and decisions in life, forcing the majority to actually to jump into the motherhood much earlier than we would suspect. So that's from a health standpoint. But when you look at the lens from a societal standpoint related to well-being and, you know, just women's physical integrity, you know, violence is always all over the place. So yeah. women are now even more susceptible to gender-based violence. Like, for example, there was an increase, a 50% increase in female homicides from last year, despite that the population is shrinking and people are fleeing. I mean, during the first month and a half of this year, I remember the parliamentarian Manuela Bolivar saying that 34 women had already been killed in 45 days due to domestic violence incidents. So, and many of these complaints, of course, go unreported. And if they're reported, it's not going to trial. So I guess the conclusion from like an economic, a health standpoint and a society standpoint is that women are exposed to all types of disadvantages. And it's not just women inside Venezuela. It's also women who take the hard decision to flee. Because for example, when people actually take the decision to flee, these women are exposed to sexual violence, to exploitation, to human trafficking. I mean, just last year, the organization Zafas said that 37% of women had reportedly experienced some form of violence. So it's not just inside the country, but it's also women who decide to flee as well are also victim of all these kinds of disproportionate effects. All of that is consistent with what I heard from Venezuelan migrants. As the economic situation worsens, women, more so than men, have to worry not just about themselves, but about their children. In Cúcuta, I talked to Alicia, a single mom from the border region. Here's what she had to say about being a single mother in a remote border region during this unprecedented crisis. We don't have help from anyone. You practically have to go out to ask for work or find work on a farm. Ask for work so that we can eat. I'm a woman and I have four kids. I'm a single mother. I don't have support except for my mom. I don't have someone to give me work because honestly I'm a mother of four kids, so I don't have help from anyone except from myself. If I find something to eat, then I eat. Now, when I discuss Venezuela's decaying healthcare system with Catherine Bliss, she talked at length about the fact that there has been a huge increase in maternal mortality rates in Venezuela. Tatiana, a Venezuelan woman from Yaracuy, told me that she was lucky to be alive after having labor complications while in Venezuela. Yeah, it's no secret that, well, that those of us who are living there are basically, well, we're basically living at the mercy of God, because really we are healthy. I have a baby, my baby is healthy. When I gave birth, I had a serious fertility issue and a serious health issue during my pregnancy. Well, thank God we were able to access the supplies to treat it, because the hospitals there don't have anything. Not even gauze. There is also a shortage of reproductive health commodities, including birth control. Alex, when you were deputy mayor of Elatillo, you oversaw a healthy pregnancy initiative which aimed to address these rising maternal mortality rates 
and expand access to healthcare. What was the situation like on the ground when you were overseeing this effort? What unique vulnerabilities, in your view, were women in El Atillo facing? Yeah, um, it was such a challenge. And I guess my biggest takeaway is that humanitarian crises are never gender neutral. And the ongoing crisis in Venezuela is no exception to that rule. Like yeah. I was able to experience that crisis firsthand when I was deputy mayor in El Atillo, And I just saw a dismantled primary care health system and so much lack of policies for disease prevention. So Moises, to share a little bit of context for our listeners, you know, the theory is that in government in Venezuela, is as decentralized as possible, and each level of power has a basic role and clear competencies with regards to public health management. So in theory, at a municipal level, our role was to develop programs and services oriented towards education, promotion, and prevention of diseases. However, that was absolute theory, and the objective was absolutely utopic when regional and national governments collapse and they lose their ability to address and solve public health issues, which force local governments such as ours to take on a very larger load of attention and medical assistance than we were actually, you know, equipped in doing so. So despite the crisis, our team got right to it and we accepted the challenge to innovate our services. And we just decided, you know, we have to define that our priority was to provide attention to vulnerable groups, such as kids, adolescents, pregnant women, and women at a reproductive stage, because we can't forget that teenage pregnancy in Venezuela has also been on the rise. And that's due to inadequate reproductive healthcare provisions, as well as just basic lack of access to contraceptives. Because first, or they are too scarce, or if you find them, they're way too expensive. So it's like a dead road on either side. So women, as I said before, are being pushed into forced motherhood and with not too many chances to live through it. Just like we heard from the Ministry of Health back in 2017, when they said that child mortality increased in 2016 by 30% and maternal mortality increased by 65%. So all these figures were so alarming, but yes, we had a really successful healthy pregnancy initiative, which was a program that rewarded women who completed a nine month prenatal control with different like conditional transfers of basic products and goods for their pregnancy. So thanks to this effort, you know, prenatal control duplicated to 300 appointments a year and consultations within any type of healthy women program just went through the roof and they increased substantially, helping us reach more adolescents and younger adults to offer sexual education and gynecological checkups and just family planning advice. My biggest conclusion in all of this is that we were committed healthcare department team in a municipality with volunteers and allies who understood the purpose of true community service. But that is not the example that the Maduro regime is giving when thousands of Venezuelan women have to take the decision of fleeing to another country just to give birth safely. And one of the most alarming figures I've also read last year was like in the Hospital Erasmo Meos in Cucuta, seven out of 10, seven out of 10 women were giving birth were Venezuela. And in July, uh, their numbers said that 75% of women who had given birth up to the moment were Venezuela. So this just shows how this crisis is so grave and women are mostly seen as those unseen victims. So, Absolutely. And, and despite the challenge, I think that the Colombian government has been providing good health care and support to those women who cross the border. And that's good news. Uh, we hope that that continues. But now shifting years, I wanted to talk about the role of women in Venezuelan politics. I mean, evidence from other countries shows that when women are involved in peace and negotiation efforts, those efforts are much more likely to last longer. 
if a transitional or day after government seeks to address the unique vulnerabilities of Venezuelan women, then women need to play a role in shaping the democratic transition, right? Based on your experiences, what are the major barriers keeping women from participating in Venezuelan politics? And what lessons do you learn as a young female political leader? This is such a controversial topic, but from a personal perspective, I have learned that government policies are more likely to be stable if the government's composition of its team reflects all of society, all walks of life. You know, women, especially in political arenas, are more likely to raise issues that affect women and affect children in a very differentiated manner than men, um, such as education, gender-based violence, health, all these topics we've been talking about. And I saw it when I was in Latillo, where 75% of the cabinet, of our cabinet, of our team was female. And we had strong, experienced, capable women leading in education and health and security and tourism and urban development and environment policies, you name it. And we all just brought an inclusive lens to the table, which made our policy so much more sustainable. So without a doubt, our local government's composition led to less inequality in our policies, But I also believed it helped to increase confidence in our local government. And I feel that this is essential for a future transition in Venezuela yes. because yes. confidence in public institutions and our political leaders today are so low and are so controversial. So when you're asking me about the barrier, well, here's where it gets even more controversial. I mean, some people say it's because we don't exercise effective quotas in Venezuela. Some people say we don't have strong legislative frameworks that guarantee gender parity. Some people say that with such a strong economic, political and social crisis at hand, you know, gender issues are absolutely secondary. Yes, I hear that all the time. All the time. And a lot of people say also that, you know, women just have more domestic responsibilities, which just don't make a 24-7 career in politics actually something doable or feasible. If you ask me, all those variables and all those arguments are absolutely valid. But my personal opinion is that there is just a lack of political encouragement, incentive and motivation for women to run for public office or to join politics. And this applies for women who are both in the political arena or outside of it. And I can explain with the following. Yeah. Why is that? Yeah. First, for women in the political arena, not too many women are encouraged by their political leaders to step it up and to leave the backstage role. Why? Because most women are who are in politics are you know, taking care of their male leaders, are protecting them. And that's why we don't see them on camera, even though their voice is just as important. I am proud to say that I'm an exception to that rule because I had an amazing political leader, David Smolansky, who believed, predicated, and acted upon women's inclusion. And that's why 75% of our cabinet was female. And he motivated me to transition to a front stage role as deputy mayor And despite my own hesitation and my own like personal self-inflicted barriers on myself, I did it because he gave me the opportunity to lead in my community. And I will be forever grateful for that. So that on the first topic. And on the second topic, for the women outside of the political arena, I feel that many capable Venezuelan women just don't see themselves for that job because politics are so controversial and so perverse in our country. You know, yeah. they see themselves more useful working from NGOs, from civil society, from private sector, from media. They feel they just can't add more value from like environments which are, you know, they want to add more value from less bureaucratical environments or less corrupt environments. And 
Because you know what? We do have strong Venezuelan female examples in our society who are musicians, who are journalists, who are entrepreneurs, who are businesswomen, tourism experts, you name it. But there is just not enough incentive or motivation for them to join politics or the public sector because they feel that they can do so much more from their trenches. Yeah, absolutely. And I like to say sometimes that the Venezuelan crisis, it is a man-made crisis. It's not a woman-made crisis. Mm -hmm. And to seek solutions to this crisis, we need to involve half of the population, which are very, in many occasions, are being left out of the decision-making process. So we need more women in, in the political spectrum. And I understand there's a lot of barriers and a lot of you know, the fact that politics is just a mess, but thinking ahead, right? Like if we have some sort of opportunity to start rebuilding Venezuela and including voices of women into that process, what do you think can be done to elevate these voices today and during the day after by the interim government led by Juan Guaido, the National Assembly and the international community? Yes, I think it's basically two things. First, giving them a seat at a table because female leadership and female leadership style just includes much more compassion, much more collaboration and much more cooperation. And that's just what our country needs. I mean, women are driven by accomplishments, by creating well-being, not just power. So of the 20 national deputies involved in Plan País, which is the reconstruction plan, only three are women. So let's change that number because this underrepresentation just inhibits the possibility of addressing any public policy in a gender sensitive manner. You know, if like women's voices and experiences are excluded from the beginning, then there is going to be, you know, a future potential for societal discord. And I also believe the second thing I would say is that we have to address political finance barriers to women's participation. I mean, lack of funding is a significant deterrent to entering politics. And my personal experience on my end, I practically worked for free because my salary wasn't even enough due to hyperinflation. So you know, the establishment of true monetary incentives, funding of projects, which just encourage women to run or to join public sector because they're going to see their policies being executed by them. So in the very end, it's once again, Moises, it's just creating more incentives so that capable women want to join the fight from the public sector, or at least are not afraid to work with others who are working in politics. So trust is just like a major what, issue. What about the after scenario? What steps do you think needs to be taken to ensure that the day after government actually incorporates women? And what role can the international community play here? Yeah, we have to have the same gender lens on the day after scenario. And, you know, a lot of the frameworks we've been reading about just are very silent on women and gender and inclusion. So... You know, we just have to take into consideration experiences from previous transition processes, you know, from Burundi, Northern Ireland, Liberia, Guatemala, you know, who actually incorporated women. And that was a result of having higher levels of stability, security, economic and social inclusion. And those are all things that Venezuela currently lacks. So like I remember reading in you know the past days about um, there's a report on the International Peace Institute, which just says that. When women are included in a peace process, the resulting peace agreement is 20% more likely to at least last for two years. And when women are included in the negotiation process itself, the agreement is 35% more likely to last at least 15 years. So women in Venezuela just can't be a sideshow any longer. So, you know, as Venezuela begins this transition process, and hopefully this is as soon as possible, you know, the presence of women at the table, as I said before, will be fundamental. 
and other um, barriers have to be addressed, such as like the finance barriers, um, more efforts have to be made towards public consultation to encourage women's participation. How can we target women's organizations through public consultation is crucial. And we just have to make sure that La Asamblea Nacional, the National Assembly, which today is the most legitimate power in Venezuela, has an inclusive legislative agenda that effectively just utilizes all gender inclusion and just makes sure that Venezuelan citizens are all included as equal. Because I'm convinced that women's participation in any agenda setting will just bring benefits for everyone. Alex, thank you so much for joining Voices of Venezuela. I'm sure our audience and myself really enjoyed this conversation with you. So thank you for that. Thank you so much. Voices of Venezuela is produced in collaboration with the Trocapolis Ideas Lab at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Special thanks to Jumi Araki, Julia Kim, Bree Silly, who contributed to the production of this podcast, and to Maria Despradel, Claudia Fernandez, and Linnea Sandin for providing research support. Thank you for listening today. We will be here next week with a new episode of Voices of Venezuela. 